Before we get into our discussion today, we need to talk about Aftersun, presented by A24. Yeah, we do. Written and directed by Charlotte Wells, it stars Paul Meskel and Frankie Corio as a father and daughter, Callum and Sophie, who are on a two-week summer getaway in Turkey, and it's from Sophie's perspective as she remembers this trip as an adult. Slim, I melted into my seat when I saw this film. It's been nominated for four count them, four Gotham Awards. It's already got a 4.1 out of 5 star rating on Letterboxd and our members are writing raves like Hurts So Good, uh, a stunning directing debut from Charlotte Wells and Paul Mezcal is Daddy. We couldn't be luckier as filmgoers. I want to mention on Journal, our online magazine, we have a beautiful feature with exclusive photos of Paul and Frankie by our London correspondent, Ella Kemp. And Charlotte Wells talks to Ella about the I guess the delicate dance of overwriting your own memories to make a fictional movie. Those photos are amazing, by the way, Ella. Bravo. Paul Mezcal is daddy with the blue eyes. (laughs) (laughs) All of this to say, add Aftersun to your watch list and then immediately take it off your watch list by seeing it in select theaters. But now, let's get into the show. Mabel's not crazy. She's unusual. She's not crazy, so don't say she's crazy. This woman cooks, sews, makes the bed, washes the bathroom. What the hell is crazy about that? Hello and welcome to The Letterboxd Show, the podcast about movies people love watching from Letterboxd, the social network for people who love watching movies. What a treat we have for you this episode. Our guest made his first feature film at the age of 25 and all of his films since have had a human scale to them even when they're taking place in outer space or deep in the Amazon. Here is what some Letterboxd members have to say about our guest. Evan writes, James Gray rules. Levi, James Gray, better every time. (laughs) Ed writes, the more James Gray films I see, the more I fall in love with James Gray films. Nathan writes, fuck you, James Gray. (laughs) That, by the way, is a four and a half star out of five rating of two lovers. (laughs) And... uh, Here's one from Patty. James Gray, more like James Great at making movies. <laughs> and finally, from Francesca, James Gray really is a director people should be talking more about. Well, now's the time, Gemma, because we're not here to talk about James Gray. We're here to talk with James Gray from The Lost what? City of Z to The Immigrant to Ad Astra. And now with his most personal film to date, Armageddon Time. Writer, director, and nice human being, James Gray has poured heart and soul into his filmmaking. And he loves movies. He's here to talk about four of his favorites, a quartet of films that distinctly relate to Armageddon time. Those four faves are Francois Truffaut's The 400 Blows, Jean Vigo's Zero for Conduct, John Cassavetti's A Woman Under the Influence, and Federico Fellini's Amarcord. James, welcome to The Letterbox Show. I'm so, uh, I, first of all, I'm thrilled to be here. I like that you said I'm a nice person, which, which, which is great because you have no idea. I could be like, you know, like, you know, like, you know, hitting dogs or something. Like, I, I could be just like a but I'm glad that you think I'm all right. We thought we'd, you know, start you off softly and then I, you could reveal yourself mm-hmm. to us over the course of the hour. Okay. Well, I don't know. My, I have three teenagers now and I, I'm not so sure they think I'm very nice right now. So I like that. Of course they don't. No, of they, they don't. The, You're the dad. I'm Their the job ogre. is to hate you when they're teenagers. Yeah. The and welcome to the show, Ogre James Gray. That doesn't quite have the same ring to it, I don't think, for audience. Okay, good. Look, it's been an exciting day already for you, James. Here you are on the Letterbox show. That's exciting thing number one. Uh, and then congrats on your Gotham nomination for the screenplay for Armageddon Time. Oh, thank you very much. What do you make of all the hoo-ha? around film releases and awards season and what you're doing like right now, spending all day long talking about yourself. I don't really like uh, that part of it, obviously. Talking about myself is, uh, well, I used to like it. I liked it when I was in my early 20s. I thought it was the greatest thing in the world. And now it's like, it's horrifying. But I do love talking about other movies. Mm. So that that that's like a joy for me. So I, I could do that all day because I feel like I have to be like a, a salesman for old old cinema 
I mean, not on, I'm sure Letterboxd, I mean, everybody's watching, you know, every movie ever, you know, they're like, a, 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 you know, probably writing lengthy exegeses on like, you know, some movie from like memories of underdevelopment or some fantastic movie like that. But for the most people out in the world, they don't really know anything about the cinema before 19, you know, 99, if that. And I've, I've been very open about how I, I wish that in high school, uh, the cinema were taught along with the other, you know, with fine arts. You know, in, the, mm -hmm. in senior year in high school, you know, they have some, usually some measure of art education. So, you, you know, you can imagine yourself in school looking at some Picasso or something. I, I think they should show, you know, Bertolucci movie, uh, Bertolucci movie to, or something to, to kids. I, I, they would hate it, but at least it would introduce <laughs> some kind of idea of another kind of cinema, which I think would be a beautiful development. So that I'll mm -hmm. talk about all day. That's what's interesting about that is my my six year old son came in this morning as I was finishing up watching Zero for Conduct, uh, the pillow fight scene, and you know made me rewind the film and we watched it all over again with breakfast because he just thought it was fascinating watching these boarding school boys just absolutely you know cause terror through this horrendous institution they lived in. Uh, I know. I feel like we've started the conversation. <laughs> We're diving straight into the four hundred blows. Uh oh. No, that's fine. How old? How old is your son? He'll he'll be seven in February. So he likes zero for comedy. He he loved it. The one thing he said, which I was like, "You're a little shit." He goes, "But I don't really like black and white films." <laughs> I was like, <laughs> "I feel like every every child would probably say that." I know, but I'm like, "You're six. You don't get to be a film bro. You do not get to be a film bro at six, my friend. I'm sorry." <laughs> <laughs> Having said that, yeah, I do. I agree with you, James. I think that uh, pre-K, you know, the 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 entire uh, educational plan for pre-K should just be Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton. You know, it's funny you mention that because my children, my wife brought my kids. I was busy. I'm trying to remember what I was doing. I wasn't. I was working. I might have even been shooting. Was this 2012? Maybe 2013, something like that. And they showed, um, they had a Buster Keaton festival in, in Brooklyn where they were projecting uh, his films on a, a large brick wall. And uh, my wife took my, my, my three kids. And of course, they thought they were spectacular. They loved them. Yeah. Mm. And the thing about yeah. Chaplin, I mean, I love Keaton, by the way, but I think he's fantastic. But to me, Chaplin might still be the greatest director in, in, in history because you're talking about someone who mastered the hilarious and the sad in equal measure. And that's the breadth of the human experience right there. And he did it. He did it. And he did it in a moment when the medium was really in its infancy. But that alone is something that we can talk about, which is how, you know, if you look at... Uh, painting, how long painting took to mature, right? For cave paintings are of Lascaux or from 38,000 years ago. And perspective is like 1480, something like that, right? Chiaroscuro is around the same time. So you're talking basically 37,500 years of very primitive work. Or primitive, you know, it doesn't mean that it's not mm -mm. powerful in some way. Those cave paintings are very powerful. But the cinema, 1927, 28, sound comes in. And really within like a four or five year period, you have an ocean of masterpieces. Mm. So what does that tell you? It, it, I think it tells you that we had been preparing in some unconscious way for the medium. And that the human race had needed it. And that it was filling a desire that artists had had for centuries that had gone unanswered. And it makes you wonder, like, what is out there now that exists in a sort of similar way that we can't quite see? But you can see, like, when you go to the Prado and you see, if you're fortunate enough to be able to do that, and I have been once, when you see a Hieronymus Bosch's triptych, it's not one painting, it's three. You can see he's doing multiple images, he's trying for something. 
Wagner, when he makes Das Nibelungen, he's trying to reach uh, past opera. Mm. It would have been a new director. It would have been a great director. Fascist, unfortunately, but a great director. <laughs> so what I'm trying to say is that the spirit is, is filled by cinema in some way. That it's like our dreams rendered tangible and viewable by others. So it's why compassion is the key, in, in, especially in movies. Because it's the, it's, 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 it's the closest we have to witnessing somebody else's dream or nightmare. And that demands our acceptance of the other person's point of view, which is why it's fantastic. I'm tearing up over here, James. Jesus. I was like, and that's our show. (laughs) James Gray, ladies and gentlemen. This is why the cinema is not really compatible with angry uh, uh, texters or tweeters or whatever, because part of the leap you have to make always and part of the reason I've avoided uh, social media, I'm not on Twitter or Instagram or whatever, um, is it demands of the viewer a willingness, first and foremost, to let the other consciousness in and accept it. Mm-hmm. Now, you can, of course, debate it. And it doesn't mean everybody who hates a movie is an idiot. Of course, that's not the case. The, the, there's, you, know, you can like things. You can hate things. I can like your dream. I cannot like your dream. All that's totally fine. But our first, you know, uh, a great Japanese critic once said, he said, the thing we owe an artist is our humility. So, and and the cinema really, uh, more than any other art form, begs for it because it's like you're watching somebody else's consciousness. That's what I think. Might be the perfect opportunity for us to talk about the 400 Blows then. 1959. 4.3 4.3 average. So this is on our letterbox top 250. This is slot number 116 for young Parisian boy Antoine. Life is one difficult situation after another. Surrounded by inconsiderate adults, including his neglectful parents, Antoine spends his days with his best friend Renee trying to plan for a better life. When one of their schemes goes awry, Antoine ends up in trouble with the law leading to even more conflicts with unsympathetic authority figures. And you were talking a bit about how you wish that cinema like this, movies like this were shown in schools. And I remember in my first year of community college, that was like my first introduction to a lot of quote films uh, where they brought the TV out. Like let's, let's watch raging bull. And I was like, okay. And so this podcast is actually the first time that I was ever introduced to like French new wave. Uh, when we had Isabel Sandoval on, we watched Hiroshima Mon Amour for the first time. And, you know, my glasses went down and my eyebrows went up. I was like, whoa, I need to watch more movies. But that's what I appreciate about how Letterboxd does that for people. For me, you know, my friends log a movie, I see these movies on list. I'm like, I need to watch that. So in some respects, we're kind of trying to fill the void. So with you in this movie, where did you see this for the first time? What was that experience like? I can tell you exactly where I saw it. I was at a, um, you know, in, in New York in the 1980s, I was very lucky uh, uh, because there were a network of revival houses and they would show uh, old, old, you know, old movies at these movie theaters. And they, they would get very strange double features. Sometimes, you know, it was the prints they could get. And the prints sometimes weren't in great shape. You know, you'd be like, Agira, the you know the wrath of God and and uh, uh, you know the Philadelphia story you know, that would be a double feature or something. Wow. Yeah, but but <laughs> I did see I saw Four Hundred Blows at a theater called the Bleecker Street Cinema, and I'm going to give you one guess where it was. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what it is now. It's certainly not a theater anymore. It's probably a gym or a city yeah, bank. Probably, you like, know? probably like a yeah. like a nine dollar latte place, right? Mm-hmm. But I, I, yeah, I yeah, yeah, or a frozen yogurt frozen, store. Frozen yogurt, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but but I, I I saw it there. I had read about Steven Spielberg's affection for it weirdly in the newspaper as a you know a, going to, through all this you know these filmmakers I loved and reading about their inspiration. I I read that somewhere that he was a big admirer and that's why he cast Francois Truffaut in Close Encounters. And uh, 
as the character Lacombe. So I was very, I was very uh, curious to see what, what the heck this movie that, you know, Spielberg thought was so great. Mm-hmm. And uh, I must have been, let's see, it was probably 1982. I was probably 13. And I thought it was wow. incredible. I mean, it was like the first time I'd ever watched a movie where the entire humanity of the kid was validated, clear, complex, funny, and sad all at the same time. And the movie didn't condescend. And the movie didn't say, like, his dream doesn't matter. And the movie did not try to idealize the kid. So I was, I was, very, I was very blown away. I was surprised. I didn't know what to expect. And that ending... I kept, I remember, I have such a clarity about this. I remember asking all of these people that I knew had seen it, um, you know, like older people that I knew had seen it, what happens to the kid? Now, of course, we know the actual answer, you know, is he We know the actual answer. There are several films. Right. Yeah. He went on to make 400 movies after that, you know, Antoine Donnell movies. But at the time, I was just, you know, frozen on the beach, spoilers, frozen on the beach. And it was devastating to me. I mean, we're not supposed to end like that. We're supposed to know. Mm-hmm. Supposed to have an answer. I actually think we've kind of gotten away from that a little bit. I think people have gone back to wanting the answer. But I think for a period, really French New Wave, Italian cinema from that period as well was quite beautiful. There was this idea presented really out of Europe, uh, some out of Japan too, but mostly out of Europe, that... Don't give me the answer. Make me think. Mm. Make me wonder. Mm-hmm. Make me worry. Uh, Kabiria, looking into the camera at the end of Nights of Kabiria. What's going to happen to Kabiria? I like her. There's a letterbox list that speaks to that from Marsh Boy. Films that are even more damaging to think about than to actually see. Right. So you sit and kind of stew with that ending, you know, for <laughs> however many years, really, about what that means for the boy. You know, what's next? Does he actually want what he got? Well, American pictures, American pictures from the 70s, uh, from like 1967 to about 1980, those American pictures did adapt that kind of European stance a little bit. And like you, you look at uh, Michael Corleone and um, that's very disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you don't know exactly. I mean, I, even the second movie kind of doesn't answer the question, right? Because he goes from a character of ice to a character of stone, basically. And you cannot even begin to guess. I mean, maybe he becomes more powerful. Maybe his soul gets even more rotting. Maybe, who knows, the, the next frame after the fade out, he, he you know kills himself. I mean, you know, who knows? He just killed his brother. You know what I mean? So it's like they, haunt, they haunted my dreams. A 400 Blows was... Uh, was definitely an early kind of window into what European cinema brought to the world. Mm. You know, when I, I, I was watching 400 Blows and I watched it for the first time after I watched Armageddon, and I was like, I mean, the Armageddon time vibes are strong in this film. There are, there are so many beautiful um, honorings you've done of 400 Blows in Armageddon time, the typewriter, the computer, um, when he gets into Balzac and is, you know, smoking in his polo neck feels like, feels, you know, similar to the the Guggenheim looking at the painting scene. You know what? Scene and- I had never thought about that one. Uh, I have to tell you, um, I per- you're com- obviously completely right, but I had not, I had not purposely did not watch Foreign of Blows and it doesn't matter. It gets- Wow. It gets into your mind. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because you start, it's, it's unconsciously there. The typewriter computer thing, that, that is, was meant to mirror. I had something like that in my own life. But it, 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 although in that movie, he brings it back. Mm. It's actually more mm. ethical, right? He tries to bring, isn't that what happens? Yeah. He tries to bring it back and gets caught. Yeah. They're yelling to yeah. that guy in that alley scene. Yeah, they're like, give it back, and the guy's going, give me money. And yeah, they're like, you, it's not, you didn't do anything. Right, right, right. right. I, I, I have to, I, now that I've made the film, I, I should go back and rewatch it with, with, with my kids. Oh, you absolutely should, because the, it's, it, it's more, you know, it's, it's the, 
it's the schoolroom scenes. It's the teacher at the start. It's the whole choreography of the children in in the classroom in the 400 Blows. And well, he took that, didn't he, Jamie? He took that from Vigo. From Zero for Conduct. That's right. So, and, yeah, yeah. He lived exactly. From the Vigo movie. And that's what I love about this is that, you know, you're, you, you're not stealing at all. I mean, sure. Yeah, you are. That's all okay. that is theft, whatever. You are stealing, but you're, but you're, you're, if we've all had these experiences. We've all been in these classrooms, you know, we've all had these teachers. And we, this is the thing about memoir is, you know, if, if, if the world didn't need another memoir by, you know, a middle-aged white guy or a middle-aged white woman, uh, why would we get out of bed in the morning? You know, we all have our different experiences that, are, that, you know, we may have been in the same classroom. We had different experiences of that classroom. You know, your terrible teacher may have been the teacher who, who changed my life. Mm. Well, uh, completely right. And it's why we do what we do and... It's why the expression, and I, I, I'm not, by the way, I'm, I'm not just saying this to sound politically correct, but it is true. It's why when you hear from uh, a multitude of voices, it can be quite enthralling because you realize that, wait, I never saw the world that way. And mm-hmm. you're exactly right that a teacher that changed your life is the worst teacher ever to somebody else. So what what that one fact, because it only takes one person sometimes to save you. Mm -hmm. So one person can save you. What does that tell you? That's an amazing thing. The other person, the the other person can perceive that person is awful. That's why you need to hear from everybody. I I find that very powerful. By the way, I, I have a funny story about this idea of, you know, theft, uh, because it, it, it's um, one of the uh, more obvious and, 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 may I say, one of the weakest uh, points of criticism uh, of any work. Uh, one night I, was, uh, I couldn't sleep. And I, I had pledged for Ad Astra to watch every science fiction movie ever made, <laughs> I, I, which is, of course, moronic. I, you can't do that, but I tried. And... Um, I couldn't sleep, and so I just I had been I had one of the movies on the list was this movie called Our Our Heavenly Bodies from 1925, this German silent film, absolutely impenetrable. I'm watching it. It's like 2 a.m. My wife's asleep. My kids are asleep. It's like the worst movie ever made. I'm I was like, oh my god, this is so awful. And about an hour into the movie, silent movie, 1925 German movie. There's a very symmetrical shot. Cylindrical spacecraft, and a woman starts walking upside down, exactly like the flight attendant in 2001. I know that he saw that and stole it from that. It is when you see it, actually, now that I say this is one that might be a guy, I'm not sure, but it is unmistakable. It is unmistakable that he took it from that. Hmm. And I remember thinking, oh, Got to wake up pretty early in the morning to outsmart this Kubrick fella. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the point is, the point is not that Stanley Kubrick was not amazing. The point is that you you steal from it because that's what it's there for, and it becomes something different. The context forces it. Yeah. Like if you if you remade Four Hundred Blows in color uh, and released it today. It would have an entirely different feel, meaning, I, uh, 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 emotional response, critical response, box office response, than it did in 1959. Just the exact same, mm. frame by frame. So this idea of stealing, you know, he, he ripped that off or she ripped that off and they ripped that off. It's all there. It's all mm-hmm. there for you. I don't, you know, that's why I call it honoring. I'm wondering, though, who Truffaut may have stolen the uh, amusement park ride. That scene. That ride from, is horrifying wow. to me. I, I, couldn't, I, couldn't be- I couldn't believe what I was seeing in that ride. Yeah. And I didn't know what the heck I had must have looked at my laptop before they got in there. And I you see them in this circular ride that you see at like, you know, beat boardwalks all the time. People stand in this in a circle, they spin, it goes up and down. 
and it looks almost like an el- old school elevator that they're standing in. There's like four people. It slowly starts to rise. And I was like, what the heck is this thing? And then it starts to spin. And it looks, now looking back at it, it looks like the most dangerous amusement park ride in the history of a civilization. <laughs> it just looks like it might have killed people at that time. But it was crazy to see that. An amazing scene. You know, him, yeah, him sitting amazing. there, and the woman in that scene, just beautiful stuff. This is potentially a good segue into Zero for Conduct. Uh, because I was thinking when I was watching both of these films, 400 Blows and Zero for Conduct, how much the the makers of these films got away with getting their young actors to do that we might not get away with today because of uh, film labour laws and, uh, you know, health, pure health and safety. I mean, you've got, the, in, the, in Zero for Contact, the kids climbing on the roof yeah. and <laughs> just with no harnesses and just throwing shit off the roof and, and they're putting poor Antoine through this insane... Right, he's probably vomiting off screen. I don't know. I didn't watch. I watched all of these films on the Criterion channel. Just, I just need to say that shout out Criterion. Mm-hmm. But I didn't have time to watch all of the extras, so I'm not quite sure what what did happen to Antoine after that. But I was, yeah, it, it did occur to me that there's a, a big part of the reason these films work so well for us as viewers is because we are aware that there are so, no safety nets in the scenes themselves. These children are playing children and they're being put in these situations. When um, Antoine is being driven in that, oh my God, that that, that paddy wagon ride that goes on forever off to Juvie and you see his face and his eyes, his eyes are glistening. It feels that, you know, that feels transformatively real. He's going through it. That child is going through it. It's uh, that shot you're talking about, it's out of focus, right? And they used it anyway, mm. because how could they not? You got the sense that they probably were upset at, in, you know, watching the footage when it came back, seeing it slightly out of focus, and it doesn't matter. Because the, mm. the, the really matter. authenticity of the kid's experience is so, it's, it's so palpable. It was one of, I think it was one yeah. of Kurosawa's favorite movies, actually. Which is so strange because it has very it's so dissimilar. Yeah, I don't know, but he he has those long, long shots of you know, mm. dude wandering around in the fog looking looking for someone uh, oh, yeah. that goes on forever, and he's out of focus, and it's you know it's not so dissimilar. I think even the, the, the stories are different. The approach is is sort of imperfect perfection. Yeah, huma- the the humanity. Well, I'll say this: the sort of uh, the soul of both filmmakers is very much in evidence. But Zero, zero for Conduct, it, it riffs on 400 Blows in that way, or 400 Blows riffs on that because Zero for Conduct is quite a bit more surreal. Uh, it, it doesn't, it, it, there's no pretense towards realistic. Um, do you know, yeah. I don't know if you guys know about the life of Jean Vigo. Did you read about him at all? Tell us. So this is the this is the director of, of Zero for Conduct, the I mean, 1933. Yeah, it's extremely sad. I mean, the guy died. I think he was twenty. He was either twenty nine. I, I think that sounds right. And he, uh, I don't know. He, 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 he's like a. I'm trying to think. He's like the Schubert or something of cinema. Like you know, Schubert died. I think he was thirty one. It's like you realize that it's such a. I mean, he was. He made films only for a three or four year period. Um. And he made a a beautiful film called La Talante, which you should see. I probably botched the pronunciation, but it's a, an amazing film. And, and, and he got tuberculosis and he didn't make it. So it's like, you, you know, this uh, incredible career was snuffed up. And Zero for Conduct is also such a strange format because it's not a feature length movie, but it's also not that short. It's sort of like, if memory serves me, it's like 50 minutes or something weird like that. Right. And it has this uh, almost fairy tale or fable-like quality, uh, surreality. Mm-hmm. But maybe because it emerged during a period where the surrealist movement was so present, probably in artistic circles in Paris. And I guess it doubles, the, it, you know, this, I'm going to get a little pretentious on you, but the, the writer Michel Foucault, he, he wrote that, school and prison were one and the same thing, you know, and this idea that uh, school is basically jail for, for, for children. 
you know, where it forces them into a very specific mindset and you follow the rules. And that's clearly something that Truffaut felt passionate about as well and brought to Forner Blow. Something I, frankly, I mean, uh, in Armageddon time, I had them all doing what my gym was, which was taking a beanbag and simply throwing it in the air, standing in place. That was I was cracking up at that scene in the theater, like, seeing the gym, oh like people God. excited for gym. And then you actually see what these kids are doing. I'm like, this is terrible. <laughs> I have never gotten, I mean, I did all sorts of things at school to get myself in trouble. But the thing that got me in trouble, the, the worst, it's so weird what will trigger a teacher, right? It was... Um, a, a t- science teacher who also happened to be our hockey coach. And we were doing uh, hockey practice out on the field. And what she made us do that day was get our hockey stick and our ball and just bounce the ball off the hockey oh stick. God. And that was it. That's all we had to do for that entire lesson. And I just at one point went, oh, miss, why are we doing this? Because in my brain, I was like, what part of this helps me get better at hockey in a, in a really positive way? Wow. She took it as deep criticism she yelled at me and then she finally issued the, the, the famous words that st- stuck with me for the rest of my life and that I am t- unraveling even now. You have too much personality. You're going to need to tone it down if you want to get through life. I, 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 oh my God, James Gray's face right now. It's like, <laughs> I'm speechless. <laughs> that's the disgraceful like that's like mind-blowingly disgraceful actually like you know, the thing. well I mean, I mean this is actually not funny right i mean the the truth is in my classroom i didn't recognize it specifically obviously as like oh here's white privilege obviously but i i knew at age 11 something was really wrong and mm-hmm. uh there was the singling out of that kid. Mm. It was, a, I mean, he was not also the only kid of color in the classroom, but there was something, it was like a, a combination of things that infuriated the white teacher and the power dynamic was very clear. And I, I can tell you now, uh, as an 11 year old, I was, I, I knew something was very wrong. And you, you realize that like, it's kind of a microcosm of the world that the school is sort of like you see all of the threads that wind up becoming kind of insane and exaggerated in life, but they're all there at that moment in time. There's the kid in the corner who's a little bit weird. You know, if, if one of the most fascinating things I read this, I mean, talk about a strange reference here, but I was reading a, a book about Lee Harvey Oswald and apparently the, the writer did something quite interesting, which is that Lee, they, they analyzed Lee Harvey Oswald's elementary school report cards. And it talked about how he was prone to these explosive rages in elementary school. And it's like, you realize that, you know, the expression, show me a boy at seven and I will show you the man. It's like, yeah, it, you can, it, 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 school is the microcosm of the world. And what you're seeing in some ways is is actually more honest because children don't have a filter. Uh, children can be uh, hopelessly cruel. Children can can my my own children. I've got beautiful kids. I love them. I want to eat them. They they lie constantly. Complete liar. <laughs> you know who ate the cupcake? Do they? Oh. When you put a beautiful meal on the table, oh do they God. go? I'm calling in for dumplings. They don't. But I did. I was. The worst. Oh my God! You were the, the worst. worst. No, no, I was These, the worst. Oh. I was the worst. I mean, I'm <laughs> so that, that scene. That scene. So in Armageddon time, your new film. I saw this in the theaters. You know, the main, the lead character. I think you even said you were, you know, obnoxious as a kid. I, I was thinking back to when I was thinking back in my school. First of all, I should say that teaching teachers have the most important job. Yeah. period, I feel like. And if anything, these movies really yeah. remind you of that fact. Uh, I was thinking back to when one of my <laughs> one of my nuns threw an eraser at my head after I was sarcastic a little bit too much. I think I had chalk on the side of my face for the rest of the day. But there's a scene in your movie <laughs> where they have this dinner set up 
And he goes, you know, uh, what's what the exact line? It's like something super obnoxious. It's like, uh, he says, this is disgusting. <laughs> he says, this is <laughs> yeah. ordering dumplings. Yeah. Gets yeah. on the phone and orders <laughs> dumplings. And the parent, there's this chaotic scene at the kitchen table. Oh my and God. man, I would have lost it on you, James, if I was your dad <laughs> in that scene. Lost it. I know, but you know why my father didn't at that point? And it's sort of in the movie. Why? Because he does... He does lose it, you know. Well, he loses it briefly, the but then you say, she says, does anybody want these leftovers? He says, yeah, don't throw them away. I'll eat them. Because <laughs> yes, yes. Because he kind of wanted it too. He- <laughs> and my brother does. My, my brother says, my brother says, yeah, order me some fried. And, you know, the mother's sitting there, Annie's, Annie's character, Hathaway's character, sitting there going, going, I slaved, you know, a version of, I slaved all day over the, in the kitchen for this. Mm-hmm. And everybody's like, you know, yeah. let's just eat dumpling. You know, it's like, but I was that way. I was oh, probably worse. I was probably a little bit worse. I mean, even that scene in the hallway <laughs> with Anne when when she comes to pick him up after he gets caught, and that when he mouths off there, holy smokes! Yeah, he's like, well, he's all thrilled. He may not have to go to school anymore. So he's a crazy kid. I think he, you know, yeah. he got out of it or something. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like uh, I mean, no. Well, that's the thing I felt that was important, which was you, you don't want to sell a picture of of yourself as like the perfect person. Right. I was trying to express that I was like a complete shithead. And by the way, I'm sure I still am, but everybody is, right? I mean, who's perfect? Who's without mm-hmm. sin? Right. I'm going to go back and re-record the intro and, and where Slim says, please join writer, director, and complete shithead. And ogre. Yeah. I think it was ogre yeah. was the and other ogre. word. Complete <laughs> But I mean, to be fair, to be fair to Paul in the movie and you as an 11-year-old, is there a worse way to be woken than your parents banging pots and pans and singing at you? He 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 did do that. I do that to my kids now. That I do. <laughs> no. Well, James. I, yeah, but it's with a degree of irony. You know, they know that I'm sort of doing what my dad used to do. <laughs> but it is it is incredibly it's incredibly funny to see. I have to confess, my children's reaction when I do sing that way because it's of course intentionally horrible. <laughs> Like I'll go like, good morning, good morning. And then I'll do like maybe even sometimes I'll go into singing in the rain, right? So I'll go, good morning, good morning. And I take a pan like, and I have, I have a terrible voice. No, stop. And it's like, you're, you know, it's like you're shoving uh, bamboo up their fingernails or something. It's like they're doing the, you know, that, the pan death mark. So Armageddon Time, the synopsis we have on Letterboxd, a deeply personal story about the strength of family, the complexity of friendship, and the generational pursuit of the American dream. And, you know, if we follow, quote unquote, you in the 80s, New York, and there's one the thread between most of these movies, um, which I think will entice people to go see Armageddon Time, is that kind of chaotic... I almost really see the chaotic kitchen table, the family setting in that room, but also the the youth and the school. And there's certain scenes in Armageddon Time that took me back exactly to school. When you're in this classroom, it's like that rainy day. I'm so miserable thinking back to those days. <laughs> like I was transported back to grade school being just so miserable. You want to be anywhere else. And I had those same memories. Like, what if I just wasn't here? Is there something else yeah. I could be doing right now? Like so like you know the other characters we're talking about in school and you have you get unlucky with teachers. You have that terrible experience and you're like let's just get out of here. You know life life sucks at home, life sucks at school. There's got to be something else, right? And I feel like that connects with a a big big percentage of letterbox to be honest. Well, I was very fortunate in that that god this sucks, home sucks. What can I do? And my friend and I, of course, had New York City. And we mm. had the subways so we could get around. And and like I told you, I mean, I didn't fall in love with cinema until probably about uh, a year after the movie takes place. Probably when I was like 12 or 13, somewhere around there. Uh, 1981. So like a year later. But I, I, I did. There were these arcades. First of all, Times Square now looks completely different. So you can't even have that as a reference. Mm-hmm. But at the time, in Times Square, there were all these uh, arcades with uh, pinball machines and very early, very primitive versions of video games, you know, like uh, uh, Asteroids or Space space Invaders, things like oh, that. Oh, yeah. 
Gallagher, Gallagher. Gallagher, although I think it was a year later, but <laughs> yes. This, oh, yeah. And I was, I, I used to love to play them. Um, my friend and I would go and uh, basically spend what back then for us was a fortune. Let's say you spent $10. I mean, that would have been 40 games, right? Yeah. So uh, that was a lot of time spent and money wasted on absolute nonsense. But it was not home and it was not school. Because like I said, the, the school was uh, cruel in many ways. It was very cruel. And uh, it was so regimenting. So uh, like basically taught you the idea that uh, it was all about rules. And you didn't break rules. And anyone who broke rules was uh, someone who had, quote, too much personality, right? Mm. Um, and Hello. was a bad person. And you had to get rid of that person. You had to get rid of your uh, personality. You had to calm, tamp that down. Tamp down your soul. And I, you know, I used to draw all kinds of pictures. The teacher would find the pictures and say, what are you doing? Class, what, is there, what does he have to do? Be original. They all, he would recite, be original. Like, of course, the opposite, of course. If you're reciting, be original, like a chant on the teacher <laughs> saying, you should write, you know, repeat it. It's not original. <laughs> so um, the one good thing, I will say also the one thing, I used to love school trips. And oh yeah, uh, that was the greatest. And, we, you know, we did go to... Manhattan. We went to our art museums every now and then. We went to the Museum of Natural History with the school. And I'll tell you one other thing. We did do something which at the time I hated, but was amazing, which is that uh, this is their word, not mine, but they made underprivileged kids go to uh, dress rehearsals at the Metropolitan Opera. Wow. And I have to say, Sitting through, because you'd go, you go to the opera, you'd bring your bag, bag lunch, you know, the brown bag lunch, and you would eat it on the lobby floor, and you would go and watch, like, the dress rehearsal of, like, Aida. Uh, and I hated it. I thought it was terrible. It was the most boring thing ever. And now I love opera. I love mm. it. And I think, even though I hated it, the seed was planted in my soul. It's, that's why I'm saying yeah. that's why high schoolers sh should have to sit back and watch, you know, uh, a movie by uh, uh, Usmane Sembene or something, or like from the 60s or 70s, or like uh, Gilo Pontecorvo's Battle of Adjaya. They, they would hate it, but it would show them a side of the world they didn't understand, and it would somehow plant the seed in the soul. Yeah. Well, I have that. I have that to look, to look at. Well, maybe one day kids in school will be shown Armageddon time and they will get to see the model of a perfect grandfather in Anthony Hopkins. There is a letterbox review. I have to read this. Mark on letterbox writes, I'm buying anything Anthony Hopkins is selling. And I needed to ask the rocket scene. How do you make us cry, James? Spill the magic sauce on on because there's a lot of moving parts and movie making, right? There's there's the schedule. There's making the minutes. There's when are we breaking for lunch? There's I don't know. There's apple. But there's all these unsexy things about the craft, and then there's the moment when you've got an old man sitting on a park bench watching his grandchild, and and there's the writing of that. There's the casting of it. The filming of it. The editing of it. What is the magic sauce? Well, first of all, I I don't know anything about magic sauce. I mean. <laughs> First of all, I, 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 a lot of it, let's be honest here, the two, a, few, a few things are going my way, right? You got Anthony Hopkins. The guy is like, he really is like one of like the two greatest actors in the history of movies. I mean, there's like three people like that, right? So, yeah. I mean, it's like Brando, Anamagnani, and him, basically. So that helps. <laughs> That's something. Yeah. But also, you know, the, the, the other thing I will tell you about that scene in particular, which I, I quite like that scene. You know, it's one of those things where it sort of comes out the way you'd hoped and all of that. Um, mm. I like it for reasons that have really nothing to do with me. Uh, I like it because uh, the weather was fantastic. It was like perfect movie weather. It was like this. Mm. It was written that way, but like the wind, there was a lot of wind, but there was like a, you know, that heavy lowered gray New York autumn sky, which was very evocative and the trees were swaying and they were that incredible fall color and that location, which is like a modern ruin. I mean, uh, it was the location of the 1964 world's fair in New York. Yeah. And, uh, 
A great architect designed it, that building. That was the New York State Pavilion named Philip Johnson. And it, it, it was sort of halfway between, it's a landmark, but they never restored it. So it sits there falling apart, which I thought was a great kind of, had like great power even of itself. You know, this building that's there and sort of decaying. And you have all of that, and then you have a kid and, a, and, and an old man. It's like, like, the, like the ingredients narratively are there and visually are there. And so that does a huge amount of the work for you. And the, the, I, see, I, I don't, but I don't see Tony Hopkins as the perfect grandpa in the movie. So I, I, I'm very interested to hear that from you. Because I think as wonderful as he is, because he does send the kid, he, he does treat the kid with tremendous love and respect and acknowledges the kid's desires in life. He also gives the kids some cognitive dissonance. He says, be a good guy, be a mensch, right? Be a good guy, be a good guy. Yeah. Your name is Graf, fit in. Don't make waves, fit in. Yeah. I told your parents yeah. to do that. I told your parents. He, he, he basically gives up on the system and tells the kid, Take your soul and compromise it a little bit to fit in and do well. But be a good guy, but fit in. But be a yeah. good guy. Mm -hmm. And so even this beautiful person in his life gives him a life which is, it's a friction in, in, the, in the boy's brain. So uh, I think part of it has to do with the power uh, emotionally, if you feel it, and I'm grateful that you do, I think it has to do with... Uh, Part of that, the kid feeling like he says, I did nothing, of course. And he smiles, right? When he says, what did you do? When, they were, when, the, when the kids were saying awful stuff. He says, he says, I don't do anything. He sort of smiles like he thinks that's the right thing to do. Because the grandfather says, fit in. Mm -hmm. And then the grandfather yells at him. And we know the grandfather is, is saying now the, the right thing, the ethical thing. But it's also, you understand why the kid responded the way he did. You know, I, I have nothing, of course. Ha ha. Oh, you think that's funny? Because what else, what other choice could the kid make? Yeah, you would hope that that lays the seeds for Paul to have that thought, you know, later and how difficult these decisions can be for of course. people of different backgrounds and different areas. Of course. And, and the thing that kept, I mean, I've said, I've quoted this ad nauseum now. So, uh, I'm just going to say it again because I repeat it in my head over and over and over again because I think it's so important for a creative person is what George Eliot said. She said, the thing we owe the artist is the extension of our sympathies, that people do the best they can under very difficult circumstances and often make terrible decisions, which they think are the right thing to do in the moment. <laughs> and... It's much more challenging but important, I think, to acknowledge that most people are not garbage. I mean, it's easy in some ways to just talk about, you know, uh, uh, a, like a Klansman or Hitler or something. You know what I mean? It's like not – what do you say to that person? It's like the, the person's really not redeemable and it, 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 it's, 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 it's hard to find common ground with Hitler, you know. So it's <laughs> way easy to express that. Uh, and it's easy to feel better than Hitler. Why? Well, of course. It's much harder to acknowledge what most people are, which is trying their best and failing. But I think that's part of why you were beautiful, you know? Mm. You mentioned Osmane Sembene before and how school kids should be made to watch films from the 60s and 70s. And I wonder, before we move into your final two faves, James, if you could mention a few more black filmmakers from that time period that have had an effect on you. Specifically, I'm asking because Armageddon Time is very much about American power structures. And one of the facts of your circumstance is that you have the means to make a memoir with the expensive tools of cinema, but, but Paul's black friend Johnny in the film, for example, doesn't. And if I could mention a couple of letterbox reviews in relation to this, Tony writes that Armageddon Time draws a very thin line between being a movie about white guilt and giving agency and compassion for its minority characters. And Oliver says it's rare to find a biographical film that so openly deals with questions of privilege. Well, I, 
I will do that with great pleasure, by the way. But before I do that, it's incumbent upon me to express to you that I have trouble with that criticism because it eliminates, it's a grotesque oversimplification of what is a a, a kind of a, a, a problem that is marbleized throughout the culture. And one need only look at the newspaper with just the most e- egregious examples of uh, Mr. Trump's tech, uh, tweets or, or, or Kanye West to acknowledge that this is a problem that affects the roots of, of American culture in a way that is quite profound and is not compartmentalizable or simplified. And when we do that, we're essentially trying to moralize or point fingers at others. And we are saying we are smarter than, uh, than, than the people who made the film, better than. And I have trouble with that because I feel like we're all part of this and we all play our roles and we all do the best that we can. So uh, I, I, I understand the criticism, but I don't agree with it. Because I think it avoids what the film is presenting with, frankly, nuance. If you had said to my father, you are the beneficiary of white privilege. My father, as a boiler repairman, would have said, what the fuck are you talking about? And yet, he was. So the idea is a little bit more complex than just white guilt. That that is like mm. a blanket statement. You you could basically boil any work of of uh, creativity into a slogan like that and feel superior. So that's my own view. Uh, of course, everybody's entitled to his opinion or her opinion or their opinion, but uh, that's my own view on the issue. Black filmmakers, there's there's a filmmaker who we don't talk about enough, uh, named Charles Burnett, um, who made mm. uh, he's made several great films. And um, he's a, a fairly unassuming guy, I guess, in life or something, because his reputation, well, his reputation, I should say this, his reputation for people who know movies is huge. He made To Sleep With Anger. To Sleep With Anger, oh which God, is a great film. Movie. But there's a movie he made in 1977. Is it Killer of Sheep? You betcha. This is an amazing, amazing movie. And if you're a Letterboxd, listeners don't or viewers whatever listen don't know it they got to see it because it's like how do we even describe it talk about the window into another consciousness he's able to conjure a complete and like almost epic sense of soul in it it's a it's it's a masterpiece by the way i'm not alone in saying this i mean it's a very famous movie in, in certain circles Uh, There's another uh, director who I think is of tremendous value and a movie that I've long loved, which is a, was considered at the time, a kind of black exploitation movie from 1971 called sweet, Sweetback's badass song by Melvin Van Peebles. And it's, it's uh, an extremely powerful movie. It's very raw and it's almost like it's at times hard to watch but it has an undeniable impact and the anger in it is palpable in a completely like devastating way. So I don't know. We're talking about movies now. I mean, I could go on and on. Uh, there is a movie of actually that became available on, I think it was on criterion called watermelon man for a while, which I have seen as well. But, uh, yes. my favorite is of his is uh, sweet, sweet backs, badass song, which is amazing. Very quickly, Graham Williamson's review of Killer of Sheep, by the way, which he gives five stars. Nothing happens. It's perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, that's <laughs> oversimplifying, but yeah. It conveys a vision of the world that feels totally complete. When you when you see it, you'll know what I mean. It's like, there it is. It's a masterpiece. Again, like I said, I'm not the first person to say it. To Sleep With Anger is great too, by the way. But it, but but it's, but uh, uh, the, the, Killer Sheep is a landmark movie. So you should definitely see that. I watched Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song for the first time this year without even knowing anything about it. And if you 
don't even like are mentally prepare yourself. That is a picture and a half. I mean, the first like the first ten minutes of that movie, you you realize that your your eyes are open to a different sort of filmmaking from the seventies that you know you you probably have no idea about and the kind of work that he went into just producing that film to even be made in an unreal movie. It, it is. And, you know, there was a weird moment in the 70s where there were some uh, very expressive films. Like, for example, like Cooley High, a Michael Schultz movie, which has tremendous humanity in it. And in fact, there was just a, a big piece on Michael Schultz, but, you know, uh, which has a, a tremendous uh, vitality, detail, specificity of character. And there's a movie actually made by a, a white director, which is, uh, has an incredible performance by a Diane Carroll called, uh, called Claudine from, I think it's 1974. I don't know if you know yes. that film, but it's, it's a very moving film with her and, and James Earl Jones. And, you know, the, the guy who directed it was a, a, a guy who was blacklisted. Uh, John Barry, I think was the director's mm -hmm. name. He had made a couple of really great movies in the fifties. And then of course, not able to work. And uh, the film has a tremendous uh, humanity to it. There was something about that time period. And Sweetback channels an anger that feels so authentic. Mm. I remember the first time I saw that, I was 18 years old. I didn't know what the hell I was expecting. And I, I had had a book. I had a book which was called Interviews with Filmmakers. And it had a like an interview with this guy, Steve Shagan, an interview with this guy, with, with William Friedkin, who's a famous director. And one of them was Melvin Van Peebles. And, you know, I think I was maybe 14 or something. And I didn't know who Melvin Van Peebles was yet. This is when I was 14. And I started reading his interview. And he was, uh, he had, his words had tremendous power. So I, I saw the movie because of that. So a couple of years later and uh, was knocked out. But I mean, I always, of course, I showed my children, of, I mean, this is the most famous movie ever, but I showed my children uh, Do the Right Thing, which of course is uh, one of the really great films ever made, I think. Mm -hmm. But talk about a movie that doesn't give you answers, boy. That is like... <laughs> oh, no. oh my no. God. <laughs> I mean, that's such, a, that's such an amazing... It's like, what do you, what, what do, you do? Where do you go next? Yeah. 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 And that's... Uh, <laughs> it's, not, it's not comfortable. Right. It's honestly, it is. I, I still have the VHS that I taped that film off the TV with way back in the early 90s. Yeah. It is It is an absolute uh, watershed yes, movie in terms of where cinema goes next. Masterpiece. We don't have a lot of time left with you and we still have two movies that leave questions <laughs> hanging. Uh, Federico Fellini's A Marcord and John Cassavetes' A Woman Under the Influence. I wonder if the best way to approach these is, is sort of we each do a quick hit on why these films should be added to a Letterboxd member's watch list. I mean, for me, I'm just going to say Amarcord, as a lady with a butt who rides bicycles, I felt seen and represented. <laughs> if you're looking for representation, <laughs> there it was. Well, that, that movie, um, that's an incredibly powerful experience because it's sort of like you watch the whimsy of these people and yet, do che, do che. They're chanting for Mussolini. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah. you realize that, you know, we we talked about this idea of which you asked me about with the you asked me about the white guilt thing and you know, the world there's an example where like is anybody paying attention to the fact that like World War Two is coming and it's gonna like destroy the country and yet you know, we're all laughing at the crazy uncle in the tree. And so the movie functions so beautifully on uh, both those levels. It's uh, enthralling almost beyond measure and hilarious. Which of you two gentlemen, Slim and James, hasn't climbed a tree and yelled, I want a woman to the entire countryside? Well, I never yelled, I want a woman because... Uh, I was a little bit prepubescent, you know, climbing trees. At that, I think when I climbed trees in front of my house, uh, girls were still icky. But your point is, like, I was not climbing trees. Slim. I was sissy-o. 
the I was not climbing a tree. I was the one who was having the fantasy of that uh, that one classmate. And then when she when he finally wins the race, he tells her to f off. <laughs> that was my favorite scene of the whole movie. That is so amazing. When he's waving and driving this sports car. Oh my god! I love that's that. So I love that. It is like a thing of such beauty, and that's what the film has, right? It has humor. It has beauty, compassion for those people, and yet. Aren't you paying attention? Mussolini is here. Aren't you paying attention to the catastrophe in your country? Are you asleep? You know, it's and he knew it. I yeah. mean, that was part of what's in the movie, right? They all go, they see the big ship. Yay! Oh my god, what a scene. Their minds are elsewhere. Oh, what a scene. Incredible. Yeah, but that that El Duce scene in in Amarcord is Jessica Chastain in Armageddon time. Oh yeah, of course, of course, of course. Right. It's purely stolen from that. The pecking order, you know, this this idea that uh, this idea that you know, there's always someone ready to look down on you. Yeah. And uh, my first day in school, mm-hmm. Fred Trump came up to me and said, "What's your name?" And you know what he's saying. Aye. Like you know, Aye. that's the world. But look, here's the thing: it's not just like medicine, you know. Ho- uh, hopefully, I mean, the world is is filled with things that are also, you know, dumpling suckers, like insane and hopefully kind of funny. And Amar Court has that. It has both those levels working. And Woman of the Influence, very quickly, uh, I've never seen a more pure expression of love in any movie ever made. And it's like you watch it and, and, and it's completely ugly. And she's troubled, and he can be a jerk, and you never question how much they love each other. And you know it's profound. One of the most incredible scenes of that movie, and maybe in most of the movies I've seen in the last few years, is when she asks him if he loves her. Do you love me? There's just that silence. Oh my God. That was like, you talk about realism in movies and surrealism. That was one of the most real moments that I'd seen in a film period. I thought that was incredible. I mean, the movie is such an experience. It's, it's an amazing, amazing movie. And you know, when it came out, it was like, you know, some people loved it, but it was also kind of hated. And, uh, it's why we should never really immediately judge a movie because, these things change a lot over time, how we assess them. I mean, I'm old enough to remember the original response to Raging Bull and to Apocalypse Now, and they were not positive. Uh, people said, why do, we, why do we have to watch a movie about such an ugly person like Jake LaMotta? And the truth is, because that's what it means to be a person. We're not perfect. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone, right? And it's the what seems moral to us today will not seem moral to us tomorrow. And we do our best when we acknowledge the deep flaws in others. And that's why Woman Under Influence is so powerful and so beautiful. And why he says to what he says to her, which is so great, you know, she comes back and she's fixed. But not really. Oh, like they solved really. her her mental no problem. Yeah, this is this is the Gina Rollins uh, extraordinary her extraordinary performance as Mabel. This is one of the greatest performances ever. And Peter Falk, he says, remember what he, he? By the way, he's great in the movie too. And he says, he says, what happened? Hey, go. What's that? Do, do that. Do that. Basically saying, bring back the thing that everyone thought was crazy. Because that's part of who you are. And that's part of why you're beautiful. Oh my God. That's what it means to be human. That's why cinema is incredible. Our guest today was filmmaker James Gray. 
His new film, Armageddon Time, is in cinemas now in the U.S., and Ad Astra is on Netflix right now if you fancy a trip to space. Also, we have another podcast here at Letterboxd Weekend Watchlist. It's our weekly show where Mitchell, me, and Mia explore the latest releases in cinemas and on streaming every Thursday. And one last thing, also streaming, before I transition to Gemma, Lost City of Z is on Amazon Prime in the U.S. My so highest good. recommendation, by the way. The ending knocked my socks off. Oh, yeah. Knocked them off. Clear across the room, Gemma. So highest <laughs> recommendation for our, our dear audience on that one. It is... It is underrated, that one. Uh, Underrated is an overrated word, but that film is underrated. (laughs) That sentence just blew my mind when you just said that. I don't even know how to interpret that. (laughs) I need a cup of tea. Hey, thanks to our crew, Jack for the facts, Brian Formo for booking and looking after our James, Sophie Shin for the episode transcript, Sam for the art, and to Monica for the theme music. You can always drop us a line at podcast at letterbox.com. Somebody did drop us a line, not at podcast at letterbox.com, but um, on Facebook, Graham was just listening to this episode. Excellent show. Letterbox podcast weekly and for faves is my favorite podcast and the best film pod out there. Well done to all. Oh my God. Graham, you know what? If you're not already a Letterbox pro member, you just won yourself a Letterbox Pro membership. So send us a note. We'll hook you up. Because when you wrote, well done to all involved, Slim heard, well done to Slim involved. And to be fair, <laughs> Slim does edit this show. So thanks to you too, Slim. Always a pleasure. The Letterbox Show is a tape deck production. I do not have a line of dialogue from one of this week's films to go out with because all I want to end with, Slim, is James Gray singing good morning (laughs) good morning good morning and then i'll do like maybe even sometimes i'll go into singing in the rain right so i'll go good morning good morning and i take a pan like bang and i have have a terrible voice no stop and it's like you're you know it's like you're shoving uh bamboo up their fingernails or something it's like they're doing the pretend death mode this 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 is a tape deck podcast Thank mm-hmm. you.